Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. The story then continues over the next few days. And you can imagine that if this was a musical, the orchestra would be getting louder as the seas were made, the trees, the animals, and the music building into a crescendo, a drum roll. And then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals and on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came marking the sixth day, the word of God to us today. Let's imagine this morning that you get those tickets for that baseball game you've been dying to see. The Atlanta Braves versus the Boston Red Sox. I'd like to see that game. Atlanta traffic is infamously horrific, so you leave home about five hours early, but there's a wreck at Wade Green Road, There's a stalled truck at Chastain. The surface roads around Truist Park and the Battery are clogged. Finally, mercifully, you find your parking spot and you hustle to your seats. Excellent seats along the first baseline there on the terrace. But it's already the bottom of the second inning. The score is Braves 3, Red Sox 2. Ronald Acuna is batting again. Obviously, the teams have already been through the hitting order. And you turn to someone sitting beside you and you ask, how did the game begin? And your fellow fan is thoughtful for a moment. And she says, 
Well, it's quite hard to say, as this has been a hotly debated issue now for over 100 years. Now, some say the game began as a form of British cricket or rounders. And others say the roots of baseball go all the way back to Roman times, even the Greeks, a form of what is called long ball. North American historians, however, compare baseball to a game played by the Iroquois and other native tribes. Regardless, baseball as we've known it today has been played consistently in the United States since the late 1700s. A man named Alex Cartwright is truly the father of the modern game, making innovations in the 1840s. And you finally say, thank you, that's enough. So you turn to another fan. Because that's not the answer you were looking for. And you ask, can you tell me how the Braves and Red Sox got to this point? Another long, musing pause. And he answers, well, it goes back to 1871. The Boston Red Stockings, the ancestral team to both of these competitors, was organized. By 1912, they had become the Boston Braves. In 1953, in quite a surprise, the Braves moved to Milwaukee. And within four years, they had won the World Series. And then in 1966, the Milwaukee Braves moved south to Atlanta and became the Atlanta Braves. And they were just the National League doormat for almost 30 years. But since 1991, over the last 30 years, they've had some perennial success. And now to Boston, well, there... And finally, you say, that's enough of that. So you look to someone younger, and there's a teenager sitting in front of you, maybe a college kid, and you look at this kid, and you, you, you say, can you tell me how we got here? And he holds up his iPhone, and he says, I don't know how you got here, but my GPS brought me north from Peachtree City up Highway 74, where I merged onto Interstate 85. I took the perimeter there, 285 north, exit 19, Highway 41. I could see the stadium then. I made it to Lot B11 because my mom scored these great tickets in a parking pass. Just stop. The question you ask in the beginning or about the beginning, determines what answer you will be offered. Right? How did the game begin? How did the Braves and Red Sox get to this point? How did we get here? Good questions with what could be called correct answers in this hypothetical example that I have offered. But what you're actually asking is, how is it that the score is three to two after an inning and a half? That's the specific question being asked. Let's bring that example this morning over to the book of Genesis. Genesis 1. What does Genesis mean? The book title it means beginnings. And as we read it, and we, we are reading it as those who have just now arrived at the game. Traffic was bad. History is long. Sorry, we just got here. Can you tell me how it all began? How did we get to this point? How did we get here? And Genesis does not answer those questions the way that we wish that it would. It's not unusual on Trinity Sunday today for the scripture reading to turn toward the mysterious, to unanswerable questions. How can God exist as three in one? What does it mean to think of God as parent, sibling, and presence all in three? And why are we so hung up on this concept of the Trinity when the word is never even mentioned in the Bible? And our other monotheistic cousins in the Abrahamic tradition 
Jews and Muslims are scandalized by such a thing, seeing Trinitarian thinking as heresy, fragmenting the unity of God. Well, I'm going to let those questions alone today, because the lectionary reading has enough trouble of its own. Questions of Genesis 1 are worry enough for today and probably next week. The library that is the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, what we call the Old and the New Testaments, the Bible, it is a library held together with two great mysterious and controversial bookends. The book of endings, unveiling is more accurate, revelation, and the book of beginnings, Genesis. And the most mysterious and controversial part of Genesis is Genesis 1 through 11, All the wonderful, mystical, mysterious, and mythical stories are there. Creation, the emergence of evil, Cain and Abel, Tower of Babel, Enoch who walked with God, Methuselah, the oldest man, the great flood, Noah and the ark. Pick up your Bible and start reading at Genesis 12 with Abraham. The beginning of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam start there but you are already multiple innings into the game if you start reading right there. So we ask, how did we get here? What happened? And we don't really know. Because the Jewish writers don't really answer those questions. They answer the question of who, not how. They answer the question why, but not what. I'm going to restate that. We come to Genesis, non-Jews, post-enlightenment, post-scientific revolution, in the age of quantum physics and advanced biology, and we ask as people of faith, how and what? And the Genesis account is concerned with answering who and why. And even when it answers, the answers that it gives are in conflict. What did you say? Conflict. Contradictory answers. We don't have time to read the full two chapters of Genesis 1 and 2. I'll summarize them in five minutes. Genesis 1 and 2 contain not one unified tradition about the creation of the world, but two held together in tension. It is beautifully Jewish. The rational scientific reformation mind says there can only be one correct answer. The Jewish mystical wrestling midrash mind says two rabbis, four opinions. So here we go. Genesis 1 opens with a chaotic scene of water. Genesis 2, beginning at verse 4, opens with the earth already existing, but it is a wasteland. Genesis 1 uses a seven-day time period. Genesis 2 doesn't speak of time at all. Genesis 1 uses the generic name Elohim for God. It can be singular. It can be plural. It was used both ways in our reading today. And that's why it's included for Trinity Sunday. It means simply the deity, the supreme, the divine. Other nations, other ancient religions used a form of this word when speaking of their gods as well. But Genesis 2 uses the specific Yahweh 
the singular, distinct name of the God of the Jewish people. In Genesis chapter 1, the animals are created first, along with everything else in order. In Genesis chapter 2, the animals are created last. In Genesis chapter 1, humanity is created last. In Genesis chapter 2, humanity is created first. In Genesis chapter 1, humanity is created in mass. No specifics are given. Males and females, human beings, and in Genesis 2, humans are created specifically by name, Adam and Eve. Young earth creationists have tried for the last 150 or so years to iron out all of these differences. And honestly, they haven't been honest about the differences. Meanwhile, skeptics of the Bible for the last 150 or so years have tried to use these different accounts to prove that the Bible is all full of contradictions. Both approaches misunderstand the text, I think, and again are attempting to provide answers to questions that the text isn't answering. All the way back to the time of Jesus, Jewish readers of their own Bible, you know, it belonged to them first, before we got it. Jewish readers of their own Bible knew and accepted the fact that there was two creation stories. They accepted the contradictions because there was not a single tradition. There were multiple traditions. There was not one way of understanding how creation came to be. There were multiple schools of thought, multiple perspectives, and so rather than choosing one or the other, they kept them both. Now, if that makes you nervous... Don't be. I'll give you a good Christian example to settle your nerves. Are you ready? Is there a Bible in the pew in, in, the, in the chair back in front? Pick up the Bible. Find the New Testament. Matthew is where it begins. Okay, if you're at Matthew, say amen. If you haven't found it, say not yet. Okay, we'll give you a second more. All right, at Matthew. It should say the gospel according to Matthew. If you go one book forward, what do you find? The gospel according to Mark. If you go another one, the gospel according to... Okay. Go one more and you get the gospel according to... And if you go a little further, you actually sort of get the gospel of the Apostle Paul in his letters. We'll leave Paul out of it for just a moment. In the New Testament... There is not a single God-ordained, this is the only perspective you can take on Jesus of Nazareth. There are four. The early Christian writers look to the Old Testament as their pattern. And they essentially say, if the spirit, our spiritual ancestors can include multiple stories of creation, rather than keeping one story about Jesus, let's just keep them all and if things don't always fit together the way a reader might not think they should, we'll just have to let it stand that way. And we do violence to the text 
when we pick it up and say, well, we have to force these all to reconcile together. No, you don't. Let them stand alone for what they are and hold them all in tension. Now, back to Genesis. The best that we can tell, these two oral traditions that are Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 were finally written down and codified about 500 years before Jesus. Moses did not write these down during his day. The technology was not there to do that. But eventually, it did emerge, and they began to write these down. This is after uh, a bitter civil war. It's after the Babylonian conquest. It's after the nation had been almost obliterated. It's after the temple was destroyed. And these people come home from that awful experience. And the leaders of the community said, we have got to get this written down. So our descendants know who they are, know where they came from, and might get a sense of where they are going. And they might avoid the same pitfalls that we have fallen into. And so these centuries before Jesus, they begin to form the Old Testament as we have it today, and that includes here the book of Genesis. Now, knowing all of this, and if you're still with me, say amen. Haven't lost you, have I? What is he talking about today? Knowing all of this forces our hand. We cannot read these two chapters literally. I said it out loud. The people who wrote it down didn't read it that way. They didn't write it that way. We cannot read these as purely historical. The Jewish community didn't. We cannot read them as scientific. That was impossible for people living in the early Iron Age. These are mythical stories, not lies, not fables, not folk tales, not made-up legends. They are myths in the true sense of the word. These are stories, literary devices that tell us who we are, where we came from, and speaks to our reality as we understand it. We are forced to take the answers the text provides, the answers to the questions the text is asking, not bring our questions that we think it should be answering. Now, baseball theme today, so let's go one more. I can look around the room and say there's plenty of people old enough to know this, and there's some people that are not old enough to know this, but did you ever see the Abbott and Costello skit, Who's on First?, I see you, Terry Olive. I know you've seen it. <laughs> Welcome. Glad you're here today, by the way. Give it up for Terry and Diane. It was a well-timed clearing of your throat, Mr. Olive. That was excellently done. So it goes something like this. Uh, well, by the way, Abbott and Costello, on the record that this was recorded on back in the day, sold over a million copies. It was a gold record as a, as a comedy sketch, and they donated the actual gold record to the, Hall, the Major League Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. You can see it there today. And they both said it was better than a Grammy or anything else that they could have received. Well, Costello is joining Abbott's baseball team, and he wants to know the name of the players. And I'm not going to give you the whole thing, but it goes back and forth like this. Abbott says, players can have some really, really weird names these days. Oh, I'm sure, far away. Well, let's see. Starting in the infield, uh, we have who on first, what is on second, and I don't know is on third. Who's on first? Yep. No, no, no. 
that was a question, and you got it right. No, just please tell me who is playing first base. That he is. Please tell me his name. Who? The guy on first base. Yeah. Who? That's what I'm asking you for. Whose name? I've already told you the person who's playing first base. Oh, who? Why won't you tell me what the first baseman's name is? No. What plays second? And it goes on and on and on like this. It's classic. And you should go home, youngsters, get on, you, get on your YouTube machine and go find it. It's hysterical. Genesis is concerned with the first baseman question. Who? Who made all this happen? And you can call that who Elohim or Yahweh or God or the unmoved mover or the universe the source, the being, father, mother, Uncle Charlie. I don't care. Because the, what word would we use in human language to describe the ultimate, supreme, indescribable being? There is no language for that. We are grasping for that. But what the Hebrew Scriptures assert is intention, purpose, Design, meaning, deliberate action. The Bible shows us that God is the agent of creation. We aren't told about the apparatus. God is the mover, but we have no explanation as to the mechanics. The Bible answers the question of who. Science must answer the question of how. The Bible speaks to the question of why. Science must speak to the question of when. And I'll pick up right there next week and finish that thought. I'm sorry, I can't get it all in today. <laughs> Faith and science, which we have artificially compartmentalized one from the other, can be seen, I am proposing, as two different languages speaking to the same single reality. I'll say that again. I am proposing that science and faith can be seen as two different languages speaking to the same single reality. Ilya Dahlia says it best. Science without spirituality is lame and cannot walk. Spirituality without science is blind and cannot see. These two things can be, they must be, in the 21st century, integrated, you cannot explain away spiritual experience or scripture or religious intuition, nor can you dismiss or ignore science, the geological and biological facts of the universe. I'm saying you don't have to. Let's do what our spiritual ancestors did. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, let's keep them both. Religion and spiritual experience and faith communicates the story like this. Let's lay it down as a sort of Genesis 1. Science and geology and physics and quantum theory now, they say creation looks like this. Let's lay that down as Genesis 2. And rather than picking one or the other, can't we keep them both? Can't we learn to get our arms and our minds at least begin to get our arms and minds and our hearts around both of these stories. No, I'm not adding to or taking away from the Bible. 
I'm encouraging us to open our hearts to all of God's revelation, general and specific. What we read and experience within and what we see and experience without. We can, we must take them both. We can, we must hold them together. And it doesn't mean that we're going to iron out every wrinkle. And some of our conversations might turn into an Abbott and Costello kind of a back and forth. It doesn't mean that we are going to answer every question. It doesn't mean that we're going to reconcile every discrepancy. We certainly don't have to attempt to make science answer spiritual questions or faith answer scientific questions. And sometimes we will find ourselves on third base. Who is on first? What is on second? I don't know is on third. And that is a good answer sometimes. It's a holy answer. It's a sacred answer to say, I don't know. Because a universe that can be completely explained is a world far too small. And a God that can be completely understood is an idol and not God at all.